Hi everyone, this is Takatoshi Shibayama, host of the Future Design Podcast. In this COVID-19 special, I had a chat with Dr. Derek Kim, a medical doctor with a background in disaster medicine and mass casualty events. He talks to us about what's happening with the COVID-19 pandemic and what needs to be dealt with before we can go back to our social lives again. Future Design Podcast. Hi, this is the Future Design Podcast, and I have my friend, Dr. Derek Tin, uh, who's been my friend for about 13 years now. We met in London, and now he's uh, based in Perth at the moment. Uh, Dr. Tin, uh, could you tell me about the uh, COVID situation that you're experiencing over there? Yeah, uh, thanks. Thanks, Taka, for having me on. Um, yeah, so I'm based in uh, Australia at the moment. Uh, I'm chairing a independent pandemic committee. Uh, so working quite closely with both the public and private sector um, healthcare, with infectious diseases consultant, with emergency departments, really getting a better understanding of the COVID situation and how we can sort of tackle it uh, as we progress. Uh, Australia's been fairly lucky um, that in that we haven't been hit as badly as, say, Wuhan or, or Italy. Um, and it's hard to know exactly why we've we've closed our borders very early on. So the government certainly has very been been very helpful. Um, but potentially, you know, we had the bushfires back in November, December during the summer peak season, and that may have reduced a lot of um, tourism that uh, would have come from China or the U.S., uh, etc. And they, that may have contributed um, to the sort of low number, relatively low number of cases uh, so far. And what is your experience right now um, that you're dealing with the, this pandemic community uh, down where you are at the moment? What is the, the conversation that you're having? Uh, what is, could you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, look, we're, we're certainly looking very closely at the um, data coming out of um, Italy uh, as well as the U.S. in terms of the medicine. Um, it, it's a very interesting virus. Uh, there's still a lot of unknown. Um, and we are learning every day something new about it in terms of how do we manage it, how do we best manage it, um, the different type of types of trial treatments, what's working, what's not. You know, when when this sort of things happen, it's really hard because you've got to be able to filter the noise from what you want to hear. Um, you know, the studies that have like a couple of patients don't really necessarily mean a lot. Um, in the grand scheme of things, it's not a study based on nine patients, for example, is not something that you can reliably say, well, you know, it worked for nine people, therefore it's going to work for 9,000. It's not, you know, so, so a lot of it's just really filtering. Um, but looking at the case studies of what's going on, looking at how different countries are dealing with it and uh, how we are adapting and dealing with it ourselves. So, so that side of things have been very interesting. Yeah. And then during this time, there's been a lot of uh, news around what kind of medicines work or what kind of mythologies work. I mean, I'm sure there's a lot of fake stuff and real stuff uh, coming out in the media, all mixed up a, a, a bunch. I mean, what what kind of fake stuff have you actually been hearing that is really misleading the public about understanding uh, this this uh, sickness? 
Yeah, it's not so much uh, whether it's fake or whether it's real to difference in opinion. So one of it, for example, is the face mask one uh, that's heavily debated as to, you know, is there any value for the public to wear face masks? And we're a, a lot of times regarded by the World Health Organization, by the CDC in America. And they initially said, no, there's no real value, but they changed tact. Now they're looking at studies going, well, there may be a real value. And in fact, as of last week, they suggested that um, the public, uh, at least in, in America, should be wearing face masks. And some of the states have made it mandatory now, so you get fined. Um, Australia still hasn't made that those changes, and uh, there is still no recommendation um, in terms of wearing face masks in public. So it's not something that you widely see here compared to somewhere like Asia, where, you know, after the SARS crisis, everyone naturally started wearing face masks. So, so it's not fake uh, information. It's just a difference in opinion. Everyone needs to do their own due diligence and filter out uh, which studies are, are really um, have solid grounds and what the recommendations are elsewhere and then decide whether we should be adopting it here locally. But there's an presidents of certain countries that are even just saying this thing, this kind of medicine works and they're, you know, mm -hmm. broadcasting it on national TV. I mean, you know, I'm sure that, you know, there, there are actual medicines that work for some people, mm -hmm. medicines that don't. I mean, what, what are we learning about this at the moment? Yeah, there's, I mean, there's literally hundreds of trials for many different drugs happening uh, as we speak. You know, large sensors uh, are trying it, huge um, drug trials happening, even here in Australia. Um, but it's still early days. You know, trials do take a long time uh, just to, number one, get the data, number two, analyze it, number three, to make sure that it's fairly consistent, then reproduce it um, and, to, and, and essentially verify it. So right now, you know, a lot of things, we, we just don't know, you know, there may be merit, there may not be, mm -hmm. uh, we just don't know. And that's what we, we do have the luxury in Australia in that we're not getting slammed like the state. So we have the time to actually look at these data and see what is going on. And then at some point we got to make our own decisions as to, you know, whether it's worth trying this or, or not. And uh, there have been talks about getting a, uh, a, a vaccine for this uh, ever since this thing happened. And some people say mm -hmm. it takes, you know, 12 months, 18 months. I know you're not from the pharmaceutical uh, industry, but mm -hmm. you know, what do you know about, um, you know, vaccines and how, how quickly do you know, uh, do you think that we can be delivered of, of such vaccine? Yeah, look, um, I think the vaccine is going to be interesting. Um, I recently had a chat to a professor of infectious diseases and he said, look, you know, a lot of vaccines show very promising results in the lab and in animal studies, but the majority of them don't translate to humans. Uh, and that's the issue. So we're seeing, we, we are seeing a lot of promise in the labs and, and, and whatnot, um, but it's whether it can be translated at scale for um, human public use is a different question. You know, look, the, the measles vaccine, I think was the one that came out to market in a, in a record time. And that took about four years. So that just gives you a bit of an idea of, of how long it does take vaccines to get approved. You know, you don't want a vaccine that's half ready. It will just never get approved. It has to be safe for everyone to use, or at least for the vast majority of the population to use. Um, coronavirus, the subtype has been around for a good decade. So scientists have been studying it for a while, 
Um, but the COVID-19 specific subtype is obviously very new. Um, so we, we do have a lot of uh, research already done in that similar domain, uh, but we just need to adapt it into specifically to COVID-19. How long that's going to take, honestly, I don't know. Uh, and I don't think anyone really knows. You know, there is promise, but uh, no promises can be made. Yeah. Okay. So then, you know, as we wait uh, on this vaccine to come out, um, you know, what can we do uh, to go about our daily lives now? I mean, obviously, there's going to be a point where the lockdown is going to, you know, yeah. be, you know, released and we will be out in the streets. I mean, I'm sure every country will take a different measure onto how to yes. get people out of their houses. Um, you know, what do you think is the safest way to get people back on track? Yeah, look, I mean, that that's your billion dollar question or even your that's your trillion dollar question. Um, no one knows. And, and in fact, I asked myself the same thing. I was like, you know, in Australia, everyone's the government's very good at supporting uh, the social isolation, the lockdown, the border closures. So it certainly helped us um, doctors. Um, but at some point, you got to think, what's the end game? Like, how are we going to get out of this? You know, we can't indefinitely be in quarantine. We can't indefinitely be cancelling um, elective surgeries and just be on standby the whole time. You know, at some point, we just got to reopen. And, uh, and I don't know. Uh, I just don't know where the balance lies um, because, uh, you know, I look at it from a medical perspective. So it's great that we're in lockdown and no one's dying from it. Um, but I also understand that the government needs to make sure that society functions and, um, and it's going to be difficult if you know, people are just not going to be in lockdown forever. They, they just, we just can't. And do you think having a COVID test kit uh, in our own households, um, checking, you know, maybe on a weekly basis or, you know, bi-weekly basis is going to help, uh, you know, uh, contain this thing? Yeah, look, the, the test kits are quite controversial. So there are different types of test kits. And um, say in Western Australia and South Australia, in fact, the government's uh, recently banned the use of them, um, partly because the interpretation of these so-called antibody tests um, can be quite difficult, can be misleading if, uh, uh, you know, if it's inappropriately done. Um, and right now, even though the therapeutic guidelines ha have approved a number of these tests, they're not very accurate either. So we have to use it with care, you know. Uh, but there's certainly suggestion further down the line of having a so-called uh, immunity uh, passport so that if you're immune, you can be let out to society. But, you know, don't forget COVID-19 has been only around for a couple of months. We still don't know a lot about it. We don't know whether you, you do develop immunity. How long is the immunity going to last? And is it going to wear off after a couple of months or is it going to be permanent? We just don't know. Um, and uh, as I'm sure you've seen in the news, there's, there's so-called like reinfections. Are they genuine reinfections or are we just detecting, um, you know, remnants of the virus? We don't know. Mm -hmm. So at this stage, it is, it is tricky. I, I don't think, um, I, I don't think the use of immune testing at this point in time can be that reliable so pretty in the dark for a, quite a long time i guess yeah look it is difficult i wish i could you know give um you guys a better answer a, a more definitive uh, answer as to the outcomes and how what we can do 
but the reality is right now that the, really the only thing you can do is to to stay in isolation and and wait and see what's going to happen you know it's uh otherwise it's just it's just too 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 unpredictable but you, you're you're a guy who uh, gave a talk at a, did a TEDx talk at the University mm -hmm. of Melbourne on disaster uh, resilience. Um, what yep. can you say from your kind of topic? And that's primarily, you know, not just um, you know wildfires or or natural disasters. I mean, this mm -hmm. includes uh, pandemics such as these. I mean, what can you say from an authority from that kind of uh, angle? Yeah, look, I, I did my talk back in September 2019, and and in fact, I posed that. Question. I said, you know, scientists been warning the world that a pandemic similar to SARS will invariably resurface. And I asked, how are we going to cope? How is our medical system going to cope? And um, and I think, you know, Italy's answered that. US is answering that. They can't. Uh, Australia, we've had the luxury of time, of preparation. Um, but we still don't know, even though we feel like we're quite prepared, we don't know whether we'll be able to deal with that sort of scale if, if it hits. Um, so, you know, these, these issues have been around for a long time. You know, scientists have been saying this is going to happen, we need to be better prepared. Um, and yet sometimes it's hard to convince people to be prepared for an event that may never happen. Right. So or, or that they're not seeing in front of their eyes. Um, it is hard. And people generally are, are fairly fickle. You know, I said that in, uh, in November, in December, after the, during the bushfires. And I was chatting to some of my colleagues and I said, you know what, it'll be interesting to see whether in a couple months time, how much will we talking about the bushfires? Because as of that time, everyone every day was was nonstop talking about it. But once it disappears, we forget about it. You know, we forget about the people that are left with their houses burnt and left to pick up the pieces um, because something else will come along. And of course, COVID came along and that obviously overshadows it. But even without COVID, it'll be interesting to see whether we would still be talking about the bushfires or not. Um, and, and that's historic. Uh, historically, our attention span uh, is, is it peaks when the media peaks with any sort of disasters, but it quickly you know, weans off as well when uh, when it's out of um, out of the media spotlight. Yeah, I mean, a lot of people are saying this is going to change our lives. We're not going to do handshakes anymore. We're going to be cleaning our hands constantly. Yeah, um, that's, that's a mass massive like habitual uh, change for most yeah. people. And you know, once this thing kind of blows by, you know, it, it's it's kind of hard to think: Are they really going to make that change, or are they going to go back into their yeah. own ways again? You know, it's but from a medical perspective, I mean, there, there should be something that you, you guys want to advocate that should change yeah. the grid, right? And what, what do you think those are? Yeah, I mean, uh, I do believe that behavioral changes can be done. Um, certainly, if you look back at um, 2004 after SARS, you know, a lot of the Asian countries became a lot more hygienic. The hygiene standard generally was a lot higher. People started wearing face masks, hand hygiene. Um, but these are things that we've been advocating for years. It's nothing new. You know, doctors have been saying it, doctors or the medics have been saying, you've got to wash your hands, you've got to, you know, um, you may not wear a mask, but, you know, you've got, if you're sick, stay at home, cough in your elbow and don't just cough. So we've been saying these for years and nothing really has changed in terms of the message we're trying to deliver. 
But um, the hope is now people are more awake to the reality of this can actually happen right at our doorstep. Um, and I better start changing if I want to contribute um, to the health and well-being of the society. Mm. And talking about changes, I mean, you know, aside from habitual changes, I mean, there has to be a lot of things that is going to change uh, on a medical mm. level after we're, we're still in this COVID situation. It's so very hard to think about what's post-COVID. Uh, yeah. What do you What do you think uh, could uh, happen? You know, after this. Yeah. Whole in fact, it's interesting because um, Sydney, back a couple of years ago, was part of the um, Resilient City Program. Uh, it's a global program to look at how we can build more resilient cities. And one of the things we talked about is um, access to healthcare, access to telehealth, um, because you know, as the population expands. And, uh, you know, Australia, especially as a, as a huge country, you know, you can't have a doctor every 20 kilometers. Um, so we're going to expand that. And that was always something that we wanted to push for. But until COVID hit, it was fairly stagnant. There was still a lot, a bit of resistance in terms of the government support. Um, but once COVID hit, suddenly it became the next thing. And all these telehealth services started popping up. Everyone started using it. Um, the, the legislation is being fast-tracked through. Um, and so from a medical perspective, that is certainly going to change. How are we going to deliver health services in a safe and more efficient way? Um, and that's sort of in the primary care setting. Certainly in the emergency department, now we're thinking, well, you know, we're, we're doing things differently. We're, you know, when you come in, you're sick, we're assuming you might have COVID. The PPE issue is a huge issue worldwide. Um, so we're really thinking, rethinking, what is adequate PPE, you know, and uh, how are we going to do things better? How are we going to do things to protect ourselves better? You look at um, the, the COVID outbreak to date and you look at the number of medics getting sick from it. And that quickly tells you one thing. We're not doing, we're not, something is wrong. You know, the doctors, nurses, you know, frontline paramedics are getting sick and dying. Um, and we're doing this wrong. So we have to really rethink about that. Um, and that may mean changing, revising policies and procedures and, uh, and training our frontline staff better and getting, you know, government support and organizational support um, to fight this. And has governments have been talking about increasing supplies um, for protective gear across the country now? Uh, and mm -hmm. do you think that would continue uh, because, you know, this is hopefully this is a one time thing and yeah. hotel, uh, hospitals are not going to stack up ventilators and all this massive mm -hmm. protective gear. I mean, you know, there is a, there's a, going to be a time where you say, well, we don't need all this stuff at yeah. the moment, but it's, it's just like, at what level do you kind of stop it at? Right. And I think that's difficult, difficult, you know, and, and it goes back to convincing people to be prepared for something that may or may not happen. How do you convince to, you know, the, the, the health system to stock up on supplies that we may never need? Um, so I think the, this, is, this is a question that will need to be answered later on. But right now, the situation is actually getting enough PPE uh, just to man everyone and so that we feel safe going about our daily business. Um, you know, the state's been hit hard. Uh, the PPE shortage is, is well documented, um, both in Europe and the US and, and around the world, in fact. Um, Australia, as I said, once again, relatively lucky. The first couple of weeks, we've been so busy scrambling just to get PPE together. 
Uh, and now that we sort of do have a steady supply, uh, we, we can take a bit of a, you know, break from that. Um, but it's constantly at the back of our minds, you know, if we get hit and we start burning through PPE, where are we going to get supplies from? Uh, so these are questions that need to be thought of uh, in the future and, um, yeah, and thought about. All right. And aside from like these tele-consultations uh, uh, with doctors, do you see any other areas of technology that can also help the medical industry uh, prepare well for this kind of situation? Yeah, I mean, so I think certainly telehealth is the big one. Um, and it's one that, you know, I personally find quite useful. You know, I can chat to the patient. Uh, it's the next best thing to short of being there physically. Um, and you can do a lot with telehealth or you can tell a lot, you know, monitoring. Um, so I think that certainly is a big one. Now, the, the other thing that, uh, that the government's pushing out is a sort of health tracking um, app that tracks your movement uh, and, you know, if you're in contact with someone with COVID, it can sort of flag you down and geopositions you. Obviously, that comes with uh, a lot of uh, scrutiny in terms of people's uh, health data um, and, and the security of the data. And, you know, so whether that will be rolled out, uh, I'm not sure in Australia, but I know certainly in a lot of countries, uh, something similar has been happening. So in Singapore, uh, China, they do have trackers on your phone. Uh, if you're supposed to be in quarantine, they'll know if you're not. Um, so that's something that technology will, will ensure uh, a degree of um, a safety net, I suppose. Do you think that health records can also be something that can be shared globally? Because this has been always a, a tough one, right? And, and it's been mm -hmm. talked about quite a lot. You know, if you can have your health records on your phone and it tracks all the you know, conditions that you had before where you travel, I mean, if you could gather all that information and let's say, you know, I'm in Singapore, but I'm in, um, I go to Australia, you know, yeah. the doctor in Australia is not going to know what kind of history I had unless I tell them. But I mean, I, yeah. I'm, I'm no specialist in, in medicine, so I can't explain to them completely. But if they yeah. had my record, you know, it's something that I can show to the doctors. There. I mean, do you think this is this can accelerate the situation can accelerate uh, from having a global sharing of health records? Yeah, I mean, certainly we, if uh, if you go back a couple of weeks, you get a lot of um, data projections of how this is going to turn your know, number of infected cases. But the guys will tell you the projections just as is only as good as the data you feed it. You know, you feed it poor data, you're not going to get good projections. You know, why do we do so much testing? You know, if I test you, what difference is it really going to make for you as a patient? Because the treatment pathway is the same. I need, you know, if I'm okay, I stay at home and ride it out. If uh, I start getting breathless, I need some oxygen, you know, et cetera, et cetera. It's not necessarily going to change the management plan. But the, important, the importance of collating this data is so that we can do better prediction models and we can understand the disease better. So you're right. If we have every data um, point of every single person that's been infected, all their movements, uh, on how they got infected, that would be great in terms of understanding the disease. Is it practical to do that? I don't know. Are people going to want to have their data tracked by government organizations? I don't think so. Um, so logistically, it's difficult. But in theory, yes, if I can have the data, great, because it tells me so much more and it will allow me to tackle this disease uh, much better and, and future pandemics much better. Um, but, you know, 
hard to do. Right. And is there anything that, you know, lastly you want to say to anybody who's uh, in this kind of, you know, COVID panic, uh, pandemic situation, um, yes. how, should they, how should they go about until this whole lockdown thing is over? Um, yeah, look, I, I mean, I think, um, you know, the bottom line is, as I said earlier, really the only thing you can do is to stay safe and be sensible. Uh, and follow your government's advice. Um, you know, everyone needs to be patient. Everyone's affected. We know that. Um, you know, we see a lot of support for healthcare workers, but I keep saying, I, in fact, healthcare workers are in an okay position. We're not out of a job. We're relatively protected. This is what we're trained to do. Um, it's the sort of mum and dad businesses that really suffer. They, you know, how, how are they going to put food on the table? How are they going to survive? You know, other countries that are not as, as fortunate as, as you and I, um, you know, I feel for them. So um, I think the, the, the take home message is you just got to be patient and um, because everyone is suffering and uh, we're doing our best to try and come up with a solution and to prevent people from dying. And, and this at this point in time is the best we can do. Um, so, yeah. Cool. Uh, and uh, aside from being a doctor, Derek, you're also an entrepreneur. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about your business? Yeah, so, you know, um, you know I run an um, advisory company called Alpha Zodiac. So I advise um, a lot of the private corporations on health-related matters. Um, and, uh, you know, people often go, oh, people don't understand that the healthcare system, whether it's in Singapore and Australia, is a public private partnership and we rely on each other um, to support each other in, in times like these. So, so I work quite closely with public sector people. Uh, and in fact, sometimes I do some work in the public emergency department uh, as well. So it's only been very interesting and uh, you know, I'm, I'm just happy to be able to contribute something um, to the general sort of society at large. Awesome. All right, well, thank you very much for your time. Um, we value it so much and uh, <laughs> stay, stay, stay safe and healthy. Yeah. All right. Thanks, Taka. Thanks for having me on your show. Right. Future Design Podcast. This podcast was not sponsored by anyone. It's completely self-funded. So please subscribe because that will completely uplift my spirit for the day. Until next time, hasta la vista, baby.